Can I say won't give it up? Dawell Davis. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, B. Thank you for mm-hmm. doing this and, and taking time out of your day to come and uh, rap on the podcast. I've been um, looking forward to this conversation. I have a lot of questions. I've done some research. Right. Uh, and I wonder if you would start by um, telling me um, some of those early musical memories that you have. I know you grew up in D.C., mm-hmm. and I'm just curious kind of what music was inspiring to you as you were kind of coming up. Mm-hmm. Like, when did you get to the drums? And we'll go from there. Okay. Um, inspiring music has always been go-go. I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's, it's The grandfather of it is a guy named Chuck Brown. He had a group called Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. Okay. Yeah. And what And what era was this? 70s. Okay. Yeah. And was that a DC artist? Or? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, he had a hit out. Okay. Yeah, called Bustin' Loose. <laughs> I feel like Bustin' Loose. Nice. Mm-hmm. I think I know that tune. Mm-hmm. So that was a song that, that you remember kind of early on, and, and was this before you got to the drums, or did it inspire you to get to the drums? Well, what got me to the drums is I, I have a, well, he just recently passed. I had an uncle who was very famous. His name is Lloyd Price. And um, his biggest hit was uh, Personality. Because you've got personality. Oh, my God. And he had a, a lot of other hits. So, I mean. He wrote that tune? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, Fats Domino played on on his records. Wow. All those cats in New Orleans, you know. Uh, so, growing up with a famous uncle, you know, I'd get a chance to go to his rehearsals. And and he was in D.C. at the time, or was he in, in Louisiana? At the time that... that I was born. He had. He was living in New York City. Okay. Yeah. And do you remember some other records? Like, what was the music that was being played in the house growing up? Well, it was like you know all you know you know obviously the '60s soul you know band of gold. Um, but then as I started, you know, as you you're a kid and you're into music, but you can't really go anywhere because you're too young. Right. So fortunately. D.C. is a type of place at the time, and I'm sure the East Coast in general was, where the neighborhoods would have block parties. Yeah. And there'd be bands at the block parties, not DJs. Huh. Uh-huh. And most of the bands that would play at the block parties would be go-go bands, So, um, which is heavy percussion music. Okay. You know, heavy drums, heavy congas, timbales. Huh. So what? how would you describe that music? Like if, uh, if you were to try to put a genre on it. It's kind of its own little thing, you know. It's like a like a junkyard jam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. pick up a bottle and you start tapping on it, <laughs> similar to Cuba, but okay. but with the heavy funk, with the heavy funk on it. You okay. Know? Um, and it's you know there's been other bands you know like um, um, oh what's that group? Oh, Experience Unlimited EU. They had a hit called Doing the Butt. And that's go-go. Okay. That's go-go music. Okay. Uh, um, Nelly, um, he, his music, he's a rapper, but the background of, if you listen to his tracks, that's all go-go music. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And then, you know, I started branching out a little bit, you know? I mean, I started watching Midnight Special, hmm. you know, Wolfman Jack yeah. and Don Kirsch and his rock concert. Yeah. And uh, that's when I got hip to... You know, Toto. And I was like, wait a minute, hold up. 
I was like, man, they got white boys out who can groove like that? Because, you know, growing up in D.C., D.C. was chocolate city at the time. Mm-hmm. So everything you were supposed to was, was pretty much black artists. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting hip to, you know, all these rock bands, basically because I, they had these enormous drum kits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Back in the era. Oh, my God. That kit, was right? it, dude. That was it for me, man. That was it. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I got to check this out. Okay. And when and, and at what point did you get to start playing? Um, it was weird because I, I grew up in a household with very controlling parents. Mm-hmm. So um, they were not feeling, you know, the playing out thing. So I played in the school band programs, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. concert band and, and all throughout grade school. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, I got a scholarship in high school to, to be in the marching band. So I went to a place called Archbishop John Carroll Catholic. You know, that was another thing. You know, I grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, went to Catholic school for 12 years, 12 agonizing. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. But yes, 12 agonizing years yeah. of Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your parents were, were rather religious or? Well, my mother sung in a, one of uh, uh, the DC Choral Ensemble. So that was a really popular group, a gospel group. So whenever I would go see them, I'd be banging on the pews and. I mean, I just always had the rhythm thing. Plus, I like to dance, mm-hmm. so I was a little entertainer. So at uh, at the um, what they call those things, the bridge club, mm-hmm. the bridge club banquets or bridge club barbecues, I would do my little Tom Jones thing because I love Tom Jones. <laughs> and you you were singing as well. Or oh yeah, did, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not unusual. Oh come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so you're. You have the scholarship. You're you're playing in the marching band in high mm-hmm. school, and how did that then uh, transition? Um, at what point do you leave DC, uh, and where do you go? Oh, the, it was easy for me because there was a school called Southern University, and they came up to Washington DC. They played at the JFK JRFK Stadium, uh, RFK Stadium. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. And they played a school out of Baltimore called um, Morgan State. But then the halftime show happened. And when that band hit the field, my eyes were glued Mm. to that band. Mm -hmm. I could not believe it. Mm -hmm. And I always knew when I was a kid that I loved music so much. I mean, dancing and, and, um, you know, singing around the house to my mother and just banging on stuff. I mean, I was a little, you know, rug rat, you know, you know, taking wooden spoons and, you know, taking the Tupperware yeah. bowls and turning them upside down or leave. I liked them with the with the lid on them because right. they had tone. Right, right, right. And, you know, I'd always catch a little spanking for that because <laughs> I'd always climb up in the cabinets and yeah. get those bowls out and be on the middle of the floor just making all this noise. <laughs> So you knew at an early age. Oh, I always knew it, man. Yeah. I always knew it that that's that's what, you know, that's what I was born to do, and and, I, and it was met with a ton of resistance. Yeah, you know, they had other plans. Oh yeah, my mom had when I graduated from college, you know, with my degree in marketing, hmm. because you know accounting took too much time away from being in the music building. So I said well, I got to change my major. 
So you started, you wanted, I mean, you thought you were going to get a, an accounting degree. Yeah. I mean, to what? To to appease your mom or, exactly. or do something that you think she thinks is, is substantial and... And you know a good plan or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, I had a I had a percussion scholarship to the Catholic University of America, but they told me to turn that down because I was I was not going to be a music major. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, although do what you love in life and be happy with what you do. Right. You're not going to major in music. Right. You can major in anything else. You're not going to major in music. You're going to major in something you can get a job in. Right. Right. I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. So I turned. I had a full ride. Oh. Um, but I'm glad that that didn't happen because I didn't have the discipline because, you know, there was another aspect of my life that, that I loved as much as music, and that was girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, you know. Got to get your priorities right, man. I know, man. I know. <laughs> I mean, and so I wasn't, I would practice, but not the way I practice now. Okay. So, yeah. I've spoken with other drummers who have gone through uh, college and university programs for, say, percussion. And a lot of times I'll hear that, yes, I want to be a drummer, but I don't want to be that drummer. I want to play a kit. I want to, you know, I don't want to be in the marching band or the concert band. I want to be, well, a rock and roll drummer or it's just that the program isn't necessarily tailored to drummers. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of what you study in school is, you know, um, a lot of it will get you fired (laughs) on most gigs. Right. But I mean, you know, you know, everybody's got a racket and, uh, you know, you know, departments have to sell their curriculum so they can get funding so they can get students and all this stuff. Right. But, you know, I learned from. This guy named Alvin Baptiste when I went to Southern University in Baton Rouge. Uh, Baton Rouge, that was my mm-hmm. next question. And, um, you know, he heard me practicing in a music building. He had not met me. I was already registered for school. I just wanted to go hang out and practice. Mm. You know, I had my little snare drum. So so he knocks on the door and is like, uh, hey, man, I'm back. Um, meet me down the hall in about 10 minutes. I said, okay, all right, what's this all about? I was like, man, tell me, they're going to tell me I can't be in here if I'm not a music major. And that wasn't the case. Thank God that wasn't the case. But the reason why he knocked on my door, he said, hey, man, what's your name? Blah, 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 blah. I told him my name, and uh, he's like, hey, uh, you want me to call your parents and tell them that you need to be a music major? Because you're obviously not a music major because this is the first time I've seen you, and I run the jazz department. I was like, well, thank you, Mr. Bat, but... Um, I'm already in school, and I just I just want to you know be able to practice and maybe take some classes. He said, "Yeah, but you're a musician. You're a musician." He said, "I don't know." He said, "I mean, I've seen many students like you whose parents told them, you know, you're not major music, but he said you were born to play. I can just tell. You got some training you need, but I could tell you you're a musician." That's so, incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy. Yeah. You know, you know, Branford Marcellus studied with him, Randy Jackson of American mm. Idol studied with him, and mm. so many other uh, well-known musicians, as well as not-so-well-known musicians, have studied with Bat. Mm-hmm. And because of my relationship with Bat, you know, if I wanted to take a lesson with Ellis Marcellus, I could. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, because Bat used to play with, you know, Billy Cobham, and was in all these big bands. So, through Bat, I got oh, a serious education. Hmm. 
without being a music major. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, gosh, so you were able to pursue music while you got your degree. Yeah. And then coming out of that college experience, I assume, so you were living in Baton Rouge. Yeah. Did you go back to D.C. at that point or did you go to New York? Or what was the, what was the next move? Well, I mean, you know, I would go to D.C. on the breaks, you know, mm-hmm. the semester breaks, you know, the first couple. But as I started, you know, getting more into the Louisiana culture, yeah. I, I would stay. I would stay. <laughs> I would stay with someone. Right. Well, I have family down there, too. Okay. Being that my mother's from New Orleans. So, um, you know, once I graduate, because I started, you know, you, you, you start gigging, mm-hmm. you know, even while you're in school. Sure. So, you know, you're gigging and you're going to class and you're gigging. So um, uh, after I graduated, I, I moved back home to D.C. temporarily, but I was planning to move to New York. I was just waiting for my uncle, Lloyd Price, to give me the word and say, OK, come on. And uh, so that happened around October. And uh, it, but prior to that, it was just, I'm, you know, mind you. Underneath, behind all of this stuff going on with me musically, I'm at war with my parents because they mm. ca- they can't believe it. Mm. You know, this this boy has a degree mm. in marketing and business, and he's going to pursue a career in music. Didn't make sense to them at mm. all. Mm-hmm. It did not make sense. Mm-hmm. Which is why I went so far away to school. Right. <laughs> you know, right. you got to get your space. Get man. a little distance you in between. Got to get your space. <laughs> you know, especially coming from. A semi-conservative family, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad was a pharmacologist for the FDA, mm-hmm. and my mom was a computer analyst for the Department of Navy. Mm-hmm. So wow. they had heavy, 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 heavy jobs. Yeah, and they just could not believe that their son, their only son, wanted to be a musician. Yeah. <laughs> do you have? Do you? So no siblings? Your only child? No, I have a sister. Okay. Yeah, I have a sister. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she is, you know, medical tech and all that stuff. So, I mean, you know, they all have that life. Right. And I have, unfortunately, I was born with the creative entertainment, whatever, rhythmic bug. Right. So. Uh, and and they, I guess, they didn't understand it, even considering your uncle was a successful musician mm-hmm. and was clearly supporting himself making music mm-hmm. and and you know, and they still couldn't fathom it. Well, they saw the darker side of of the music life. Yeah, you know, um, you know, being that my uncle's manager was shot by the mafia because he wouldn't he wouldn't pay up. They had a club in New York called the Turntable, in which a lot of well known artists today, like George Benson, played at in their younger years. Mm. But at that time, a lot of clubs in New York City were uh <laughs> subleased to the mafia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, it's just a, you know, we see we talk about music and we and we see all this and we, you know, we talk about the touring and all this stuff, but there's a there's a dark side of music that's part of music's history um separate from the recording industry. Mm. And that's the industry of, you know, how the mafia ran the entertainment community for a long time. Mhm. Vegas, yeah. New Orleans, New York, mm-hmm. you know, you name it. Anywhere where there was a lot of money being made off of live music, the mafia had their hands in it, mm-hmm. you know. So they were just concerned. They 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 knew the dark side of oh, it, yeah. and they just they wanted to protect you, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, geez. So 
did you got the call from your uncle and went up to New York then at some point? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yep, <laughs> I'm on my way. Bags are packed. Oh, yeah. I'll I'm hop, actually I, already on the train. Yeah, I'll hop that train, dude. I'll hop that train. So, so this was uh, your, so what, early 20s now? Uh, yes. Early 20s. Moved to New York. 23 to be exact. 23. Mm-hmm. And you go to New York City. This is, did you say late 80s? 87 is when 87. I graduated, so it was the uh, it was the October of 1987. Yeah, what was that? I mean, what was the scene like? If 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 there's anything that sticks out to you, the New York thing is that number one, you got to prove yourself. Mm. That's the first order of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to hit some jam late night jam sessions, right. and I would go to the one at the Blue Note. Oh, nice! Because um, I had some friends that that uh, guys that I knew in school who were gigging with certain artists. I had a friend of mine named Troy Davis playing with Betty Carter and another friend of mine, uh, Reginald Veal. Uh, he was playing with Wynton Marcellus um, and, you know, Terrence Blanchard, people like that. Mm-hmm. So I had a couple of friends that were already there, but, you know, they were harder on me than, than people, than complete strangers. Because mm-hmm. they was like, man, if you're going to be in New York, man, you know, you, you have got to be killing it. Mm-hmm. You got to be on your game. Mm-hmm. Blue Note, legendary jazz club. Mm-hmm. Were you playing jazz, or was it a mix of genres? Like, what oh was no, happening? it was jazz, mm-hmm. straight yeah. ahead. Yeah, um, because the gig I had was a blues gig uptown in Harlem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that was my way into New York. I didn't want that to just be, you know, you got to get in some kind of way, right? So you get in, right? And um, which everyone was amazed at. You know, how, how you how you just like move to New York and you. Already, you're already in. You already got a gig. You know, because it's not that easy. No, no. It's not that easy, And that man. city is not forgiving. Uh-uh. No. So I say, well, you know, I, I, I play where most people are not willing to play. Right, right. <laughs> and after right. our joints. Right, right. But the musicianship was still at a high level. Yeah. It's just, it just the surroundings wasn't too flattering. Right. And was semi-dangerous. Right, right. You know? I I would even say just flat out dangerous. Okay, you can say that. (laughs) It's flat out and it is dangerous. You know, I mean, whenever I go to to my gigs, I'd have on a suit, but I also have on this overcoat. And I'd have my tie, I'd take my tie and tie it around my head, and I'd have on some shades. I look completely crazy. (laughs) You know, and you know, New York, you. That was my defense mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I was petrified on the inside. Right. But I was like, man, I got to look crazy, man. So nobody would say nothing to me. People wouldn't even sit next to me on the on the subway. Right. They thought, I was like, oh, my God. Plus, I had my stick bag. They didn't know what was in that. Right. Could be anything. It could be anything. <laughs> so people stayed away from me. I was like, okay, this works. Right, right. As long as they don't look down at my shoes. <laughs> Why, what were you wearing? Nice shoes? Nice shoes. Nice shoes. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. This does not make any sense. Right. He right. looks homeless, but he's got nice shoes. And so, uh, so you're in New York, mm-hmm. your early 20s. You're playing at some of the most prestigious places in the city still to this day. Um, how long did you stay there, and, and how did you transition out? Well, I stayed there until, like, the spring of 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, I mean, the, the war with my parents... You know, it's it's going on. I'm in New York playing, but the war is still going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still not feeling this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I told him, I said, you know, hey, man, you know, this is what I do. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but this is what I'm going to do. Of course, that's not exactly what I said, but, you know. Something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was the that was the whole message. Right. 
Um, but, you know, it was getting to where the New York thing was, um, it was cool, but, you know, um, the thing that makes a musical a musician's life, uh, to me, at some point, very meaningful are the challenges you face personally. Mm-hmm. Because that, that goes into your plan. Right. That goes into your songwriting or whatever it is that you do. And, you know, at that time I was facing some heavy personal challenges. And um, so I called my good old teacher, Bat. I said, man, look. He's like, man, what's going on, man? What's going on? I said, hey, man, this is what's going on. Blah, blah, blah. He said, you know, sometimes, man, um, sometimes you have, sometimes you have, when the environment is bringing you that much stress, sometimes you just need a new, new environment, man. He said, I'm not telling you what to do, but he said, man, it just sounds like, you know, you could use a change of scenery. And so I said, well, let me think about this. You know, um, I was, I was starting to get calls to suffer cats, you know, who were like, you know, drummers for the late night jam, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, I worked myself up to that point. Um, and it's just, you know, life just happened, man, and I needed to leave New York, mm-hmm. you know, which is too much going on. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to take away from the music. Mm-hmm. Because I was also a, um, my uncle had a record label called NFS Records with another guy, Ted Shapiro. So I was the record promoter. Hmm. And that's a hard gig. Mm-hmm. Because the chick that I was promoting was, was very good looking, beautiful. But at the time, she was competing with Whitney Houston and Madonna and hmm. Janet Jackson, all these people. And, and she, I mean, she really, she didn't really have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know. I, so what does that mean to, to promote a record? Are you going to, like, bringing the record to radio? Like, how, what, what was that gig exactly? Well, at the time, you know, you, basically you're calling around the nation to different gotcha. program directors mm-hmm. and a couple cats in New York, I'd go and meet with them, you know. But at but at that time, no, I I didn't have what I really needed to get her on the on the airwaves, and you needed the, you needed the ability to have brown envelopes, mm-hmm. and they didn't supply me with that, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> right. unfortunately. Yeah, you know, they didn't have the budget. Yeah, they didn't have the budget, <laughs> you know, because that's how it was. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, right. That's the truth. Right. You know, that's the truth. I mean, it was no such thing as format radio. Right. The, the the program directors were the format radio and they, they had way too much power in the industry. Right. You know, I mean, if somebody had a hit, they had no choice. They had to put them on. Right. But like, you know, I would get her put on the Thursday night trash or smash type of gotcha. thing. Right. And, you know, and so that wasn't enough for the owners of the record label because one of them was her boyfriend. He was like, look, man, we got to get her played. I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do the best I can do, you know. Mm-hmm. So that started taking up too much of my time, too, mm-hmm. because I was like, man, I need to practice. This is New York. Mm-hmm. I, I got to get at least three hours in today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that became a, a kind of a distraction. So mm-hmm. so I used the company's UPS account and shipped my drums back to Louisiana. <laughs> and uh, because I was like, you know, I established myself as a musician in Louisiana, not D.C., mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you right, know, right. I mean, outside of the school thing. I, I'm an established musician in Louisiana, so that's where I need to go back to. Mm-hmm. So uh, April of 1988, I moved back to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Baton Rouge or New Orleans? Baton Rouge. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I never, ever lived in New Orleans because, you know, 
Who wants to live in the city right. where the lake is higher than the houses? Right. Uh-uh. <laughs> I knew one day that was going to happen. Yeah. 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 So what was um what was the music scene like in ba- in, in Baton Rouge? Well, um, I was playing with uh, a, a jazz artist by the name of Larry Seabirth, and I was also playing in some dance bands and some blues bands, and just you know just kind of gigging and uh, journeyman drummer, yeah, journeyman drummer, yeah, whatever you need, I got it. Yeah, yeah. So I basically was working between three cities. Uh, there's a sound town called Lafayette, Louisiana. It's 47 miles west of Baton Rouge and New Orleans, which is 66 miles southeast. I'm sorry. Yeah, southeast of Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would that would be my Tri-City area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I started delivering pizza, you know, because I needed a new ride and uh, I didn't have any credit. So my, I t- asked my mother, hey, you know, what do you think? You know, <laughs> can we call a truce here? <laughs> White flag. Exactly. I'm the white flag. Like, okay, Ma, I hear what you're saying, but I need a new car, and, you know, I don't have very much credit going on yeah, here. Yeah, So she's like, yeah, I'll sign for that car, but you have to get a job. Uh, yeah. I said, okay, I can do that. I can do that. So I was like, hmm, what can I do that I can make money during the day but would free me up in the evening? So I started delivering pizza. Yeah. No shit. You had a degree in my back pocket. <laughs> Work for Domino's. No shit. Yeah, I make good money too, man. You would not believe. Really? If you apply a little thought to the process of delivering pizza and and what's the most effective, efficient way to do it, you can pull some scratch out. You can pull it out, dude. I was making close to, in 1988, I was making close to $2,000 a month delivering pizza. Damn. Yep. And you were still working at night. And I was gigging at night. Perfect. Yep. How long did that last? Uh, it lasted to about 1989 because then okay. I got a call from a, a guy named Andy Smith. And uh, he had a full-time band and they were looking for a drummer. And they played pop music. So, uh, But they were based in Lafayette. So uh, I went and auditioned and got the gig and uh, ended up uh, quitting the job and relocating to Lafayette. Okay. To play with that band. And was it... M- mainly in town or was it a touring thing well i mean they would play in a regional area gotcha i mean they would play in louisiana they would play in texas um they're playing golf shows alabama which mm-hmm. was a lot of fun mm-hmm. and uh they had you know they were full-time working band mm-hmm. and louisiana's a place where they're, they're always there's always some type of music festival going on mm-hmm. so there was always that I talk, speaking of subcultures mm-hmm. yeah that's a whole nother world really yeah the festival circuit? Yeah, the festival circuit. And the fact that you could be, you know, if you if you have an open mind, um, you could be a full-time musician and work in Louisiana, no problem. Really? Yeah, back then. Yeah. And make huh. a and make a living to where you could have, you know, a crib and, yeah, you know. Huh. Yeah. Um, when do you start touring? Ah, good question. Um, there was a place that we used to play at that was uh, like a Friday night, but it happened on a Tuesday night called Poets. And it was like, a, it started off a place that's like, you know, back in the 80s, happy hour was it. Right. You know, go to happy hour. Meet me at happy hour. So <laughs> so we would play uh, at the end, at, right at the end of t- happy hour. But there'd be so many, it'd be jam-packed. This band was good. Yeah. It was a really good band. Everyone could sing. Everyone looked good. Everyone had a look. You know, because back then it was about that too. Right. 
Right. And um, just women galore would come out to that band. And plus, you know, Cajun and Creole women. I mean, they're some of the most beautiful women in the world. Yeah. And crazy, too. <laughs> so either way, um, word got out about the band, you know, because um, as a band becomes more popular, you know, other people hear about them. Other artists hear about them. So long story short, uh, I met a guy named Ronnie Beard. And he was a manager, but he was from Baton Rouge, but he was he was managing a guy who was on Polygram named Wayne Toops. And Wayne Toops had a group called Wayne Toops and Zydecajun. And he was trying to uh, open Wayne's um, um, horizon by maybe adding a little color to the band. Hmm. So I was the uh, I was the target. Mm-hmm. And they came out to see me one night at Poets on the Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. And um, so I could meet Wayne. Wayne could see me play. And and um, so I end up uh, joining that situation. But that that was that, that was a heavy decision, man, because I knew that, you know, I was going on the road with rednecks, hmm. Hmm. you know, and being a black guy, you know. Um, but I was, like I told you earlier, when we were talking on the patio, at, there's a stage in my life where I was all about getting as much experience as possible. Mm-hmm. Because I noticed that all of the drummers that I looked up to had a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And I understand now why it's so important to have just experience mm-hmm. in this business. Who were some of the drummers that 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 you felt like the most influenced by? Or uh, that you looked up to or Okay. Um Zigaboo Motorlesti, uh the drummer for the meters. Mm. Oh god, yeah. Um a guy named Herman uh Jackson. At the time he was playing drums for BB King. Mm. Um um some of my peers, you know, Troy Davis, who played drums for um, a lot of jazz artists, real young. Um, Steve Gadd, you know, um, John Bonham, you know, mm. people like that. So clearly a diverse range of, of players. Well, yeah, I wanted to be able to play everything well. Right. You know, which right. takes an enormous amount of work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and this new band... What was that? What was that style? It was like pop rock. Pop rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had to have like I had a hybrid setup. I had like a double stack cage <laughs> with cymbals hanging down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had to look, man. Yeah. It was banging, but it took like two hours to set up. Right, right. Yeah. Two two bass drums, two kicks, or no, just one bass drum. Okay. But I also had like um, an in Sonic, <laughs> an in Sonic. <laughs> piece of crap <laughs> sampler yeah and i had like the early stages of the rolling uh octopad yeah and i had triggers yeah so i I would trigger the drums and mic them too i mean I, I had a huge setup oh my god but the sound was just absolutely incredible i mean because their whole goal was to sound just like the record right and there was like a certain sound you know uh, yeah that was happening in terms of pop music right and this group was trying to get a deal so, um, they, so they were writing their own music as we well. We were writing songs, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. So um, it's a good-looking band, and um, we were actually offered a deal. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. It was like a developmental deal. Um, I forgot which record label offered us a deal, but the band leader didn't tell us that he was offered a deal. Hmm. He just told us what he did with the deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He declined the deal. Mm-hmm. 
So it wasn't really up for discussion, sounds like. It really wasn't. Yeah. You know, it was it was called the Andy Smith Band for a reason. Right. And uh, he's a, you know, a South Louisiana Irish Cajun. Whoa. So he had a serious temper. <laughs> serious temper. And he could drink like a fish. Oh, I bet. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know. But, you know, um, that was my first experience in being in a... Um, um, a mixed band, mm-hmm. and um, and it taught me that you know it, it benefits a person. Uh, it benefits me. I can't only speak for me to have an open mind about who I work with and what kind of people that I work with, and, and being open to learning about people, mm-hmm. and um, being open to uh, you know obviously sharing who you are with other people. But also, it taught me how to also stand your ground. You know, uh, so it's it's hard when you your first tour and you're, you're in your bunk and, you know, you hear the N-word a lot, mm-hmm. you're not directed towards you, but just, just in general. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, wow, man, you know, this mm-hmm. is heavy, man. Mm-hmm. This is heavy. That's not good energy, right? I mean, it's not, not, not a good atmosphere. No, but it was, it was the opportunity I was waiting for. Mm-hmm. And sometimes opportunity... Doesn't look like you thought, like you think it should look. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because at that point in time, I realized that I wasn't. I thought I was like this super, super heavy jazz musician, and then I started realizing that. I started checking out Miles because at that time Miles was doing all his, you know, yeah. electric stuff, right. you know, funk stuff, and I was like, well, if Miles Davis is not, you know, right. You know, I mean, I idolized Wynton Marcellus at the time because everybody in my clique was idolizing Wynton Marcellus. Yeah. And he was providing great opportunities for people. Um, but not everybody, you know, is is qualified to get that opportunity. And, and not everyone should get that opportunity. So I was like, well, who are you? Who are you really? So I said, well, I'm a person who likes... You know, I like to rock out, you know, I don't like to just swing, you know, I like to funk out. I mean, I like many different things about, I like music in general, mm-hmm. because if it moves you, there's, there's, there's something good about it. Mm-hmm. That's how I look at it. It's not genre specific. It is not, man. Right. And I'm that way to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, when a person looks at my resume, it's like, wow, really? <laughs> you not only change bands, you change armors. So right. I was like, yeah, right. that's exactly it. So the story goes is sponsored by my friends Becky, Carrie, Kate. People, this is the Engstrom team. This is a mother-daughter real estate team with Coldwell Banker Realty. They've been selling in Phoenix for 25 years and they know the market well. Are you a first-time home buyer? Maybe you need more space for your growing family. Maybe you just have questions about when is it the right time to sell? I had all these questions. These girls, they know what's up. Up, They walked me through the whole process, and kablammo, I'm a homeowner. Reach out to them. If you have any questions, they're here to help, and they got your back. 480-250-1936, or find them online, engstromteam.com, E-N-G-S-T-R-O-M, team.com. How long did that relationship last in that band? With um, Andy. With Andy? Yeah. 
I was with Andy Smith for about three years, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and first real touring experience. Yeah. Um, you know, we we do the band shots and the photo shoots and, you mm-hmm. know, it's just, we were a band and, mm-hmm. and we, we saw ourselves, you know, I mean, everybody that supported us just said, you guys need to, you guys need to have a video, you guys need to be out there, you know. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to do it, but, you know, I think... It got to be too much pressure for Andy, hmm. you know, because he'd have to clean up some stuff. If you're going to become a recording artist, um, you know, you, you got to hide your demons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least enough to, you know, to, to make the record label some money. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And get some notoriety, get a little fame going on. You know, mm-hmm. it's all part of the game, mm-hmm. you know. So, but that didn't happen. So I moved on and went with, uh, with um, Wayne Toops. Mm-hmm. And um, he had had two records on Polygram Nashville. So, um, and it was so funny. <laughs> we were going to do a nice, big, nice, big tour with a guy named Mark Chestnut. Too, too, too cold for golf, too hot to fish. That guy, a country artist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, out of Beaumont, Texas. But then we did, uh, we did a concert together, a New Year's Eve concert together. And they end up you know, doing, you know, a little too much, you know, stuff in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And the show was so bad. I mean, Mark's show, not ours. Uh-huh. Our show was on point because, you know, it was. Right. Um, but then Mark starts his show. And Mark had some songs on the radio at that time. Um, so he invites Wayne up. <laughs> hey, Wayne, won't you come sit in, Wayne? <laughs> so they go up there and they both been doing blow in the, in the dressing room. And uh, and they just they get to the point to where Mark's show just comes to a halt because they're just doing this 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 howling thing, and the manager was like, "Absolutely not! This band is not touring with this guy. If this is what's going to happen every night, no, you know." So yeah, yep. Okay. Welcome to the music business, right, folks. Right. Yeah. So, Jesus. All right. And what style of music was the new band? Uh, uh, Wayne did something he called, um, he calls it Zyda Cajun. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was basically Cajun rock with uh, with definitely Cajun music elements to it, but with a, like a Zydeco undercurrent hmm. and a real heavy edge to it. Hmm. And what was the, like, what was the instrumentation of that band? Oh, accordion. A single row diatonic accordion, mm-hmm. with guitar, uh, bass, drums, keys, mm-hmm. 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 organ more or less. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were basically, you know, uh, basically a Cajun rock band. Mm-hmm. And again, original stuff as, as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah, because he had a couple records, you mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And more touring in the States, and so getting that experience as well. Right. But we mostly toured in the southern part between Texas and Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where he had a, that's where he had a lot of following. Mm-hmm. And was that on like a like a tour bus or what? What was the? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was my um, first experience in touring in an eagle. Okay. Yeah. You know, basically a rolling icebox. Right. That's what it is. <laughs> so that was that was fun and exciting. Yeah. Fortunately for me, at the time, the the woman in my life was uh, a Creole girl by the name of Larita, and she was. She was so light that if if you if you looked at her at a glance, you you almost thought she was either white or Mexican. Because the Creole women, they they 
they have very fair skin. Mm. They 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 have that high Spanish element to their mm-hmm. or Indian, however you want to look at it, French, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but she was gorgeous. Everybody loved it. And that was cool. Uh that helped that helped ease me into the click of these Cajuns. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those these Cajuns, man, they you know, it's that's a tough nut to crack there, man, because they that's a talking about subculture. Uh-huh. You know, they're from Nova Scotia. But you know the 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 ones who settled in South Louisiana. I mean, they they, they built their own, they built their own culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's mm-hmm. the music is as much a part of the woven texture of their culture as anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to respect it, mm-hmm. definitely. Hmm. And and right, so it's maybe hard as an outsider to get into that scene into because they are so. Mm. protective in a good way mm-hmm. of what it is yeah. you know they want to keep it real and authentic and mm-hmm. and so here you are a kid from dc <laughs> trying to get into this thing you know but you have this beautiful woman yeah that's that yeah. smooths the edges out a little bit well fortunately um a lot of people had already heard about me through my work with the andy smith band mm-hmm. so i mean because i was like the new guy in town and you know, I remember I had relocated from Baton Rouge to Lafayette. Right. So I was like, and talking about two completely different worlds, only 47 minutes apart. Hmm. You hmm. know, I'm talking about, I'm going from, you know, running between Baton Rouge, Lafayette, New Orleans to riding on the swamps hmm. on the Chafalaya Basin, you know, seeing alligators. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a different life here. <laughs> this is This is way different from D.C. <laughs> but I loved it. Yeah. Because it was new. Yeah. And I was... At that time, I had a, I had just this ins, in, insatiable thirst for new experiences and just experience. Yeah. And the only way to do it is to do it. Yeah. You know, and to just go with it and be open to what you learn and to who you meet and mm-hmm. you know. But wow. stand firm on who you are, though. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. When did you get to buckwheat? Buckwheat wasn't until the very end of my. Um, almost 10 year uh run in, in in zydeco and cajun music got you so um uh terrence simeon is what got me to phoenix mm-hmm. and i know you i say that is because there's this cruise called the ultimate rhythm and blues cruise now there are other cruises happening now like the jazz cruise the uh, smooth jazz cruise there's, there's all kind of cruises now but back in 1993 94 um the, uh, some guys out of Kansas City put on this basically a festival at sea called the Ultimate Rhythm and Blues Cruise. Uh, the cruise that I was on, the first cruise as Delbert McClinton, um, Dr. John, wow, you know, artists from Chicago, Coco Taylor, um, you know, the um, the fabulous Thunderbirds. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, groups like that. Very cool. Yeah, and so I was with Terrence Simeon. At the time, it was Terrence Simeon Mallet Playboys. So you know, we're on this cruise, and um, you know, you you see people. It's a week long party, basically. Right. right. Uh, everyone's crawling off the ship. <laughs> uh, and then I meet this 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 really um, light up the room type of redhead. You know, and she and I become very, very good friends. Very good friends. And uh, her name is Kathleen Gramsey. And, you know, the friendship turned into, you know, uh, you know, hanging out. And then that turned into a relationship. And 
she invited me to, she was living in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. So she invited me to visit her one April. She said, come on out, spend, you know, spend a week or so. So I said, okay, cool. You know, I'm off tour, I'm off the road, boom. Uh, so she took me up to the Mogollon Rim and we went camping. And I just couldn't believe what's in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, we think of Arizona, I think before I moved here, I was thinking of John Wayne movies. You mm-hmm. know, I was like, okay, here we go. Right. It's not at all like that. I mean, it's a little bit like that back then, because mm-hmm. I moved here in 95. But it's nothing like what people think. Mm-hmm. Nothing at all. Arizona is just a whole different place. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Speaking of subcultures. Right. right. And, you know, I was like, you know, because at that time, I was, I, was, I was wanting to move out of Louisiana. I had been there for a long time. I played a lot of festivals, but, you know, I just wanted to. You know, I was getting tired of how people thought down there, mm-hmm. you know, limited thinking. Because, you know, my mind, my mind's always looking for new growth, new new areas, new horizons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was either going to move to Atlanta or Nashville, because I like Nashville, um, and or L.A. Hmm. So I said, you know, then I came here and, you know, something guided me. To, to move here, you know. I mean, I was still touring when I moved here. Because mm-hmm. The first year I moved here, I was driving back and forth between Louisiana and Arizona. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. Texas is way too big. Okay? I know. It's too big. It's like, well, we couldn't have split that up into yeah. two more states? Yeah, at I'm least. Like, Give me a break, man. Yeah, yeah. 897 miles from <laughs> Beaumont, Texas to El Paso, dude. It's like it's a day much. of driving. Oh, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's how that happened. Oh, my God. Yep. Commuting to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because I moved here, and I was like, well, I'm not going to just stop playing. Right, right. You know, and I told her, I said, I'm not going to just stop playing. I right. mean, I got a touring gig. Right. It's just in Louisiana. Right. And I just have to take care of myself in terms of getting back and forth, because that's what the band leader says. I didn't ask you to move to right. Phoenix, Arizona. I right. mean, that's the choice you made. You should take care of that expense. Right, right. So how long did it take you to kind of say that this is home, you know, like this, I'm part of the scene now. Like, did you have to get off the road with that band to start focusing here? Or was that a gradual process? It was a gradual. Mm-hmm. Cause I met a guy named Dave cook and, um, there's a place called the melody lounge. So I would go there when I was, um, uh, off of the road. That's but, here in town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right off of Webster and Scottsdale road. It's no longer there. Mm-hmm. But I would go there on Mondays and Tuesdays and Sundays hmm. because that was a great place to meet musicians. That's where all the cats would hang out, just mm-hmm. like Cock and Tails now. Right. Um, but you could get gigs. Okay. You know, so uh, I met Stan Devereaux and, you know, Dave Cook and Chris Goff and Walt Richardson I'd met on the road. And that was another thing, you know, meeting Walt Richardson on the road, uh, they opened up for a band I was touring with and just completely just ripped the place up hmm. and i was like man where you guys from he said we're from, we're from phoenix man so we exchanged numbers you know um al ortiz mm-hmm. you know all these different cats man yeah and so when i moved to town i would just call everybody I, that i met on right. the road and these people were slowly starting to plug me in you know right. i mean then i could just tell okay hey man new cats in town you're fired no right you know say hey man come come out sit in you know yeah so I would do that. Yeah. Whenever I wasn't on the road, I'd yeah. go out and sit in with people, and slowly started getting calls. And uh, a great friend of mine, Greg Warner, 
Yeah. Would put me, have me be his understudy on his, uh, on his um, dinner theater gigs. So, I mean, I was getting work. Yeah. Uh, Andy Gonzalez with Barrio Latino started hanging out with those guys. Yeah. And it's just a whole process. Yeah. Just it is a process. Plugging right? yourself in. Right. Going to meet people, going to hang. Right. You know, letting people hear you play and playing well when you get a chance to play. Right. And then so it got to the point where um, I got tired of the commuting thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so my, my girlfriend at the time, fiance, she's like, you know, it's time to make the transition. You know, it's time to make the transition. And I said, yeah, you're right, you know. Because I was scared. I was like, oh, man, you know. But then I started getting, you know, more work. I, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then so... I think the transition happened for me because Todd Schubert was really cool. Because at the time, Todd was working at the conservatory, mm. you know, and he would, you know, ask me to sell for him when he couldn't make it, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I was just starting to get plugged in and from multiple directions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and um, that was in 1999. Mm. My last tour, uh, Louisiana tour, uh, was with Buckwheat Zydeco. And I toured with him for the entire year of 1999. Wow. And as soon as that tour was over, I told my fiance, we got to rent a van. She's like, I know. I know. I've seen you on that gig. I know. <laughs> I've seen those drums. <laughs> well, she's like, she saw me not having a lot of fun. Uh-huh. You know, Buckwheat, like I said, Buckwheat's a legendary person. But just because you're a legendary person doesn't mean you're the easiest person to work with. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. And right. you're not supposed to know. They're not in our game. So right. Um, so I called him and said, Buck, I'll be there in two days. He's like, okay, okay, what's going on? I said, I'm coming to get my drums, man. And uh, he's like, okay, we can talk about it when you get here. You know, so um, so that that was that. Yeah. You know, I thanked him for the opportunity to work with him and, and to, to gain the experience yeah. of working with Buckwheat Zydeco. Because yeah. you can't be in Zydeco and Cajun music for 10 years and never have worked with the one of the biggest names in the music. Arguably the biggest name. Pretty much. Right. When you say Buckwheat Zydeco, everybody kind of knows that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I can see how that would be a tough transition to, yeah. to, to walk away from steady work in a, in a market that you're very comfortable in. Mm-hmm. Move basically across the country to a brand new market where... You know, it's, I mean, I don't know what the scene was like here in the, in the mid nineties, but, um, I think, I guess I've heard that, that there was work. There weren't a ton of bands, right? No, there weren't. So there were plenty of, there's resort work, there was conservatory Mm -hmm. work, Mm -hmm. weddings and corporates. And, you know, so you could, you know, after, you know, you did do the networking and, and, and made friends in the community, Mm -hmm. there was certainly enough work to go around. Mm -hmm. So that's, that makes it an an easier decision, I would assume. Right. What were some of your, um, what was the scene like here in the late 90s? Well, I mean, you know, as you well know, uh, you know, Connie Cole pretty much, you know, she was it. Yeah. You know, and of course, when you meet Connie Cole, you meet, you're meeting Mike Florio. Right. And Mike was, uh, they were very instrumental in getting me plugged in. Awesome. Um, I would go see them on Thursdays. At the point. At the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Legendary. I've heard yep. many stories about oh, yeah. the point. <laughs> I go see him at the point. And then, um, you know, they would refer me some things. Sometimes he would let me, um, you know, he would ask me to sub for him when he had to do something with Connie. And then, uh, 
um, there was this place that opened up called the Cajun House, which Mike was also a part of. So he got me plugged in with uh, uh, Joey DeFrancesco's brother, Johnny DeFrancesco's a blues guitarist. Hmm. So started working with that person, started working uh, a lot more with Walt Richardson and his group. Um, Were you a part of his band, Walt's band? I was never part of Morningstar band, mm -hmm. but I would work a lot with Walt. Mm -hmm. And I still do work periodically with Walt. Walt's great. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. So, and then uh, there was Stan Devereaux. He would play at the Rhythm Room. Mm -hmm. So I would do gigs with him there. Um, a lady that um, uh, just recently passed away named Maxine. Her daughter is Lady J. Mm -hmm. uh, I would work with her at um, Char's. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, you know, yes, I've worked at Char's, <laughs> which is why I won't ever. Well, it's closed now, but right. you know, but yeah, I've worked at Char's. Okay, and uh, worked with a guy named Donnie Dean. You know, who used to work, work with Tina Turner, Ike and Tina Turner. Oh wow! Um, just started, you know, Chris Petrino started doing, you know, corporate gigs with him, mm -hmm. and, and um, started subbing. Um, for uh, some of the, you know, I was like, well, you know, I mean, Andy talked to me. He's like, man, you're a really good drummer, man. Why don't you uh, open your mind and learn some Mexican music? You could you could work more. Hmm. He said, you'd be great because you could you could do your jazz and then you could do some cumbias. So he talked me into, you know, eventually joining his band, mm -hmm. which was a whole nother experience all yeah. by itself. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How did... Um covid uh affect your creativity how did you address it um how did you get through it creatively personally it affected me from a perspective of um okay um i had to I had to take stock you know i had to take a deep breath you know because you know when you lose you know six to seven thousand dollars worth of work in three days right you know, you have to say, okay, this is this is no ordinary thing. Um, so, um, fortunately, um, you know, I wasn't super worried at first, you know, because I had put money away, and um, and then, you know, um, I just, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I'm a prayer, I'm a meditator, and I was just asking Divine Spirit, you know, hey man, you know, um, what does this mean? Does this mean it's time to put the sticks down? Or what does this mean? And it's just, I'd always get this thought, you know, just just practice. Hmm. Just practice. Just practice. And uh, so obviously that's what I did because, I mean, we have all this time. Yeah, plenty of time. <laughs> Can't go nowhere. Got to be right. in the home. Got home by 10 or something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, Nicole Pesci hit me up. She said, well, I got an idea. Uh, she and Renee. Pat, I'm sorry, Nicole Pesci and Renee Patrick. Uh, they said we want to do some, um, we want to do some streaming things. We want to try some streaming things. And uh, so I work with, you know, Francine Reed. So uh, I did. We, she's like, but well, we need you to do something really, you know, light, you know, because I think they did it with Alice and Todd. Mm -hmm. And you know, so I checked them out and saw, you know, how Todd approached it. And, I'm not saying I was copying Todd, but I just wanted to see what, sure. what's, what's the vibe for this. Yeah, obviously not a drum kit. Right, right. <laughs> it's a whole different approach. Yeah, with no bass player. Right, right. I mean, you mm -hmm. you have to 
do the thing, but you can't really do the thing. So you have to figure right. out. And I think Todd does that really well. Yeah. He can work without a bass player or with a bass player. So. Right. right. But that's the approach, right? I right. Mean, that is definitely the approach. Yeah. And because Nicole is such an excellent player. Yeah. Um, Jeez. It, it worked off really cool. And so I would do that. And then um, probably about uh, May. Uh, well, the church that I work at, that helped out too because they continuously paid us mm-hmm. until Great. a certain point. Mm-hmm. I guess too, the PUA thing kicked in. Yep. Um, so I was getting bread from that. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a little bit of gigs here and there, not too much, yeah. you know, because people were just, just paranoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, it was really a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then the conservatory that I work at, you know, um, the owner opened back up. I think he opened back up um, shortly after May of mm-hmm. last year hmm. because he needed to. Right. You know, so this is the Conservatory of Music, yeah, Recording Arts and Recording Sciences, Arts and mm-hmm. Sciences. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that helped out. Mm-hmm. So between the PUA money and um, um, money that I saved, yeah, uh, church, church. You know, I was I was pretty much at the amount of money that I normally make. Yeah, great. So that's how I made it through that. Yeah, and just in living, you know, being low key. Yeah. Um, uh, just really just, you know, not really doing too much extra. Mm-hmm. So I, I took the time to really reinvest in myself, mm-hmm. you know, develop, you know, I purchased, uh, finished, uh, one of my dream kits, finished that. Nice. Well, because the money, you know, I, I wanted to be able to, to show that the money was put towards, you know, the, the, the public servant money was put towards, um, uh, uh, improving the business of Dowell Davis drums. Yeah. Uh, what is the dream kit? Oh, it's an Eames kit. It's made in, um, the shells are made in Sargus, Massachusetts. Oh, really? Yes. Is it a particular wood that they're using? I mean, they use birch, but yeah. it's how it's made. They, okay. They make the drums uh, on these old school, old school steam barrels. Huh. And uh, it used to be owned by a friend of mine by the name of Joe McSweeney. A heavy Irish accent, heavy. But he sold the company to another guy. But most of my drums are made by Joe. Huh. And um, so, uh, you know, I always had this dream kit that I wanted, I, made of Eames drum shells because they just have a pure sound. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not super loud or nothing like that. They just have a pure sound, hmm. pure. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never heard anything like that before. Hmm. It, to me, they're like the Stradivarius of drums. Hmm. When it comes to handmade instruments, hmm. so, um, so you kind of used the the break, and you kind of leaned in t- to your craft. Yep. Yeah, that's yep. incredible. I, I, just, I was like, man, I, I need to become better, and um, so I developed also developed my own electronic setup hmm. because I end up doing a session <laughs> where a guy said, "Look, I just, there's a song I know you can play. It's I need that go go feel," hmm. and. Uh, so a friend of mine, a guy named Tony Kinchon, he has his own little studio. He's like, man, I'm not, I can't do acoustic drums right now. I said, okay, all right. So, um, so I had a rolling sampling pad, and I said, well, I got an idea, man. Um, maybe we could lay the track, and I'll just play the parts on the rolling sampling pad, and maybe bring in a hi hat, you know. And he's like, okay, we could try that, and it came out great. Hmm. So that inspired me to, you know 
reinvest my PPP money into getting electronic setup. So when somebody says, hey, man, I need you to record on something, but I can't do acoustic drums. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can say, well, okay, boom, I got it. And you can record it at your house? Uh, I try not to because I live in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, And plus, you know, at home, I I try to stay low key Mm because I have a lot of gear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't want to draw any attention to myself. Right. Right. Not, not, you know, you know, if I don't have to, I would prefer not to. Right. Right. You know. And so the electronic kit is more because of a sonic quality and less, uh, than, a I guess a performance or like it's a specific sound that you want out of the electronic kit versus the acoustic kit. Well, the, the cool thing is that I bought a, a sampling pad, rolling sampling pad. So basically, because I work at the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences, Mm. on my down days, or days where I have whole classes, but I still have to be there on campus, I would bring in some drums and sample them. Oh, cool. So everything I'm playing, mostly everything I'm playing out of the sampler pad that's like an acoustic drum sound, are my own sounds. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's hip. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It really works. And And they're like responsive like a real drum? Oh, yeah. Like the technology is such. Well, I mean, you got to spend money. Yeah, you got to get the real stuff. Yeah, so that's what I did. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 been quite the learning curve. How long have you been doing that, the craft stuff? Oh, I would say I I went there full time. Probably I worked there full time. Started in two thousand. Oh wow! I was full time. So. 21 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And basically, I think I've done it once or twice. But basically, there's a there's a, a house band. Mm-hmm. Someone comes in. Uh, I know. Have you you've worked with Jay Allen? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Jay's a buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. And and so a singer songwriter would come in. You'd cut a tune down so the kids can learn how to how to mix it, edit yep. it, like all that. The whole process of of uh, engineering, uh, mixing a, a song. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome. I mean, yeah. yeah. And and if the house band is killing, what a great opportunity to go get some raw tracks together. Exactly. You know, and everyone walks with tracks, right? I mean, like I could get the files or Jay gets the files and can do whatever. Exactly. Yeah. It's your song. Yeah. Exactly. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jay was doing it for a minute, but you know, you know, everything changes, you know, but we definitely miss having Jay there because... It would, it would always be Jay's songs. Right. It would always be his songs, which I love. Yeah. Because I'm like, if you're going to record, I mean, you know, why not take out the opportunity to, yeah, you know, record one of your songs? Right. Yeah. You know? And it, it was a great thing because we would sit down and we'd rap about, you know, the feel and, you know. Right. You know, you know <clears throat> kind of, you know, kind of snare thing you want happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and, and it's creative. Yeah. You know? I mean, to me, it's like, um, when you have an opportunity to get paid and be creative, I mean, come right, on. Right. I mean, that's that's sweet. Yeah. That's kind of it, right? I mean. It's, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> it. To me, that's right. kind of it. Right. That's how I feel, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's um, some of the things I did, you know, during the COVID thing. And, and just, um, you know, basically tr- studied on how to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, because they were giving us bits and pieces of information and none of it really made any sense to me mm-hmm. based off of what we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. So I started studying the immune system. Hmm. Every night I would study the immune system 
Learned a lot about the immune system. Hmm. It's not just eating oranges. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just vitamin C. <laughs> it's not just vitamin C, man. It's the bone marrow. It's right. white blood cells. I mean, it's, it's a whole thing, man. Yeah. And it's nice to... to um, the, 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 I think the, the thing I like most about the whole initial COVID thing was it gave me a chance to rest my body. Because mm-hmm. my, my, my left knee was really bugging me. You know, from all the years of just playing and playing mm-hmm. and playing, you know, so it gave that a chance. It gave that a chance to kind of heal, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, and so it's like everything happens for a reason. I mean, you know, um, you know, it's 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 it was, wasn't a good thing, however you look at it, but it's a circumstance that we had no choice. Right. It's not like say, well. You know, A, you can deal with the B, you, you know. Right. No, right. it's all A. Or you can move to Texas and everything's fine. Yeah, right. Right. It's like across no, the board. Yeah, everybody has to deal with this. Right. Whether you like the taste of it or not. Right. Whether you like, you know, what you got to do or not. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so I was like, okay, let me just go ahead and just be smart and just reinvest in myself. Yeah. And, 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 and keep practicing and just really try to focus you know you know because this is this it's a circumstance where i'm sure it happened for a lot of people where you have to sit and say well okay where's my life going right what am i doing um you know our, our friend ted you know he started um he started a business right right because you know, you know a lot doing of doing books book yeah, bookkeeping yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so i mean a lot of a lot of people got caught with their with their pants down yeah you know you know, we're trotting along with our little schedules, and then bam, everything's gone. I mean, everything yeah. was gone within I don't know forty eight hours. My exactly, my year was stopped. That's it. <laughs> you know, so I mean, the big challenge for me was like, okay, you know, because <laughs> Mario and I would, you know, we'd see each other. It's like, man, you know, like, Mario was like, man, how, how do you not drink every night? <laughs> I was like, bro, I said, I was about to ask you the same question. <laughs> Let's go get a drink. <laughs> I was like, man, I mean, you know, I mean, I have way too many purple bags in my place, man. I was like, where all these all these purple bags come from, man? They say, well, well, you know, sir, they didn't just appear. Right, right. I mean, somebody had to go buy those purple boxes, you know. That's funny. But that, that really helped me through the first couple months, man. And yeah. I will admit, you know, I, I, I drank too much. Yeah. During that first couple months, man, yeah. I just did not care. Right. I was yeah. like, okay, I got to do something to lift my spirits here, man. Yeah. You know, if I can't be around anybody, right. you know, can't go out anywhere, I was like, I'm going to have a party right here. That's right. <laughs> I'm throwing myself a party tonight. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, man. For real. What um, What is left that you haven't uh, conquered uh, that you want to? Is there anything that is still on your checklist of to-dos, musically oh, yeah. or otherwise? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, um, I, I still, I still want to tour a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, still got that tour bug. I still got it. Yeah, you know, I still got it, man. So you know, and you always want to stay on top of that. You yeah. know, in terms of your preparation and. Making sure your skill level can match the moment, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, I still want to do that. But you know, the most important thing is for me is to constantly grow me, 
Um, and somehow the universe, you know, um, the universe just kind of just does its thing, man. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you you know that you're you're on your path. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you're on your path, man, you get all this assistance, that, mm-hmm. this this help that you just you didn't ask for it. But it's just it's just coming towards you. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the power of thought, hmm. how we use our thoughts. Our thoughts create our lives. And if and you know, I, I read a lot of books. And in most of the books I read, if you don't like your life, just simply change your thoughts, hmm. which is not that easy to do, mm-hmm. especially if, you know, you have this like, you know, um, vinyl record, per se, of ingrained patterns, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, as we all know, when you see these patterns in these records, I mean, it's part of the, it's part of, it's, 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 the, it's, it's what it is. Mm-hmm. So to be able to redo some of those patterns... Mm-hmm. Sometimes you know, and some of those patterns just can't be erased simply by saying, "Well, you shouldn't think like that." But you know, it's it's the habit of the thought mm-hmm. that keeps us stuck in the thought. Mm-hmm. It's the habit of that thought, mm-hmm. not the habit of thinking. So, but just think about when you know there's like a game or something, or like a really cool concert or a really nice guitar or a really nice piece of gear that we really really want and we and and it's a little bit pricey but we find a way man mm-hmm. we find a way to get that mm-hmm. we're gonna get that you know we're gonna get that guitar or i'm gonna get that drum right so to me it's it's that type of thought it's the type of thought that i say okay this is a, how you how you think about when you really want to get something you really want to achieve something you put X amount of thought into that direction, getting it happen. What can I do to manifest this? What can I do to get the money for this? What can I do to get exposed to this person? Mm-hmm. You know, but to me, that's how we got to kind of, that's how I, I have to kind of be that way every day, but not to the level of extremism, but to the level of focusing my thought and say, okay, what do you want? What do you want to do? Yeah. You know? Because it's just easy. It's as easy as just simply changing your thought. Hmm. You know, but you have to believe in whatever concepts you apply to your life. Because if you don't believe in it, it won't work for you. Mm-hmm. It would just be going through the motions. Right. You got to have a heart connection to something. Hmm. That's why right. we have a heart. Right. Not just to keep us alive physically. Right. It's there to tie us to our innermost feelings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and allow those feelings to manifest. Mm-hmm. You know? And, um, you know, being being a spiritual cat, man, I mean, I, you're not going to ever catch me on the corner on top of a box talking about, you know, the the, com- the end days are coming and, you know, mm-hmm. or re-quoting, quoting scriptures out of the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or the Bible. I won't ever do that. Mm-hmm. I just take what I learn and apply it to my life and realize that, you know, I mean, I have a philosophy in life and... And my philosophy is simple. It's not enough to be good at what you do. You have to be effective. You have to impact other people's lives. You know. And once you do that, then it, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Hmm. You know, it really does. Hmm. I mean, I mean, just the, the. I mean, I hadn't always known you, and you know, but I've always liked what you've done. I mean, I remember when I saw you at Voce, I said, Mike, man, what's up with this, man? What's going on? You know, what's going on? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's Brian, man. It's Brian. I said, yeah, but damn, man, I like what y'all are doing, man. 
you know. Thanks, man. You know, and, you know, just, you know, it's just, so to me, it's like when you like attracts like. You know, when you're on the right vibe, you meet people who are on a similar vibe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just, you know, and all the experience that I've had and, and all the experience I've yet to gain um, just keeps me on the right path, man. Keeps me on the right path. And, you know, you know, delving into the world of humility, becoming more humble, really, really contributes to our success. You know, because, you know, at some point in time, you know, you know, you've experienced it. I'm sure you've experienced it hundreds of thousands of times where, you know, you're doing a hit with some people, cool people. And, you know, for some reason, the gig just takes a turn and everything just starts becoming magical and just mm -hmm. in a whole nother realm mm -hmm. of reality. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing people with you. Mm -hmm. I love that is the feeling I love the most about music. Mm -hmm. When you can bring people to another place mm -hmm. of feeling and being. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and you're doing it with other people. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I loved hearing that that um, you were able to take what was a, a huge negative uh, and, and find the positive in it. You almost had to, Brian. Yeah. You know, because, you know, let's not forget, I mean, we were also, um, and still are, kind of, living um, uh, in a world of turmoil mm -hmm. outside of COVID. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, I, I really had to dig deep, man. Yeah. You know, and to stay in touch with me and my purpose, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, at the end of the day, it's cool to be concerned about you know, starving kids over here and poor people over there and refugees over here. But the the biggest refugee we always have to take care of is ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, because once we lose that, I mean, we can't do nothing for anyone else. Right. We can't do anything. Right. You know, and that's what I had to work on. I had to, like, stay in tune with me, stay in touch with me. Um, I was still dealing with the death of my mother. who She died in 2019. Mm -hmm. So still missing that person mm -hmm. you know um you know life life is you know life has definitely changed for me in a lot of ways but but all good in all good ways because it you know it helped me the COVID definitely helped me see what was important in life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without a doubt mm -hmm. you know um and, and what I realize is important is is internal happiness internal happiness not relying upon people or circumstances or events or mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. possessions to determine your level of happiness mm. you know mm -hmm. um it's just when you're looking at mirror you got to really be cool with that person that you see mm -hmm. and, and and if you're not cool with that person that you see when you're looking at mirror you have to put your energy into, well, how can I become cool with that person? Because becoming cool with that person is the main ingredient in happiness. That is the main ingredient mm -hmm. in real happiness. Mm -hmm. And once we, once we get that, man, let me tell you something. It's a beautiful feeling mm -hmm. to be able to look at yourself and say, you know, I, I love that cat. Mm -hmm. That cat's a cool cat. Mm -hmm. You know, because, you know, None of us know when 
when it's time for us to check out. I mean, we live in a crazy world. We live in a crazy world. I mean, I can't believe how crazy the world is we live in. So, you know, the time to check out could happen at any moment. Could be in traffic, could be anywhere. Right, right. Could be anywhere, especially for those who travel, those of us who travel. Right. Could be in a city and a straight bullet could hit you. You never know. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, and the thing that contributes to the love of my life is music and drums. Mm-hmm. And, and the other part of that is watching other people who have passion in what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, and whether they're singing or whether they're playing drums or whatever it is. That gives me a lot of joy mm-hmm. because that's I feed off of that, mm-hmm. you know, that energy, you know, and, and it's music to me is never a competitive thing mm-hmm. ever, you know, because the moment you go competitive, you detach yourself from your own gift and you insert into that to its place, you know, um, a comparative thought thing where well, nothing ever happened because of com- compare comparisons that's in sports mm-hmm. in music um you know i mean your your gift has taken you all over the world you know uh, different countries performing in you know and and that's a that's something that's that ain't easy mm-hmm. yeah that ain't no easy thing man right you know getting stuff set up you know making arrangements and stuff and stuff like that and and vibing with different audiences who mm-hmm. may not speak the same language. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, you know, I mean, uh, the COVID definitely helped me to sit back and, and look at my timeline of my life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, man, I am a wealthy dude. <laughs> you know, maybe not in, in dollars, mm-hmm. but in terms of people I've met and know around the world and all of the different places I perform and all of the different venues I perform and, 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 you know, performing for people who barely can speak English and I can barely speak their language, but when music hit them, it hit them. Right. You know, the great equalizer. Uh, it's, and it's, and it's, it's been said a million times and it will be said a million more times Yeah. because more people have to realize that. Right. In order to use their gift more effectively, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, you know, I would definitely would like to do another world tour. Yeah. But when the time is right. And right now it's not it's not really that great of a time to do a world tour. Right. Right. You know, we gotta get the world back right. Yeah. You know, the whole world's in shambles. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. Same here, man. Right I've, on. I've really enjoyed the last couple months getting to know you and rapping a little bit, seeing you over at Cock and Tails and, and and hearing you play and I hope that there's more of that in our future, you know? Yeah. Um, I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time and, and sharing your story. Well, Hey man, thank you for inviting me to the party. <laughs> You're always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Tim. Okay, man. Thank you, Brian. Dawell uses Evans, drum heads, Bosphorus cymbals, pro mark drumsticks, Pure cushion snare wire and blue headphones. So the story goes.